Well, as we are kind of moving back to our seats, um, today we're beginning a, a new series called The Jesus Way. And I think if you were asked to sum up Christianity with one single word, I think you would be very hard-pressed to find a better word than the word forgiveness. And it's a word for most of us we love to receive, but it is something so difficult for us to give. But at the core of the Christian gospel, at the core of the Christian faith, is this word forgiveness. And it seems like in our world with the pain, the heartache, the, the, the difficulties that we have, it seems like at times we've lost the ability to imagine a world where forgiveness is even a possibility. A world where forgiveness is forming and shaping the world around us. But I believe it is the world that Jesus imagined that could be formed by forgiveness and that could be changed into a new day. And so we begin this series with Peter. Peter struggling to understand who Jesus was and what it was he was calling him to. The, the reading that we had this morning from Peter's powerful question. Because I think it's a question we've all asked. But it, kind of as we get going in this series, there are some questions that I want to really drive this series for us. What is the scope of forgiveness? Are some sins unforgivable? Is forgiving something Jesus is only capable of as God? Is forgiveness always possible? Is forgiveness always right? Are there times we should not forgive? And then what about the question of forgetting? And we're going to allow these questions to kind of be the driving force for this series. And as I said, we're going to begin with Peter and his question to Jesus as he's trying to figure out what are the bounds, what are the limits that we should go to. And so Peter came to Jesus and he asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Peter wanted to know where the limits were. And in the traditional Jewish setting, it was understood that you were supposed to forgive someone up to three times. That if someone did something to hurt you, you were supposed to forgive them three times. They do something wrong, you forgive them. They do something wrong, you forgive them. They do something wrong, you forgive them. They do something wrong, you don't have to forgive them. All bets are off, you can handle it however you want. And so the question then is, well, where does Peter's number of seven actually come from? Why doesn't he go with the traditional Jewish answer of three? Instead, he says, well, how many times? Seven times, Jesus? There's a very specific reason that Peter asked that question. And that number seven is very specific. If you go back to the beginning of the Bible, you remember the story of Cain and Abel. They find themselves on the outside of the garden looking in. And Cain and Abel both offer their sacrifices, and Cain feels like God is pleased with Abel's offering and not pleased with his. And so he takes his brother out into the field, and he kills his brother. And God comes to look for Cain, and he says, where is your brother? And he says, well, I'm my brother's keeper. God knows what he's done, and he begins to, to challenge and question Cain. 
And then he gives Cain these words of cursing. Saying that there's going to be problems that follow you because of what you've done. There's going to be consequences for your actions. And Cain looks to God and he says, well, this punishment is more than I could possibly bear. People are going to hunt me down and kill me. And God says, not so. I'm going to put a mark of protection on you so that people know not to mess with Cain. And if someone does mess with Cain, they are going to suffer vengeance seven times over. And so Peter's response is very, very calculated as he asks Jesus this question. If someone were to kill Cain and they would suffer vengeance, revenge seven times over, then in this new world that Jesus is trying to, for, to create, this new world formed by forgiveness, well, obviously we would want to reverse that. And if it was seven times vengeance, then we need to offer seven times forgiveness. And so he comes to Jesus with this question. How many times should I forgive? Seven times? And I think Peter says this maybe almost boastfully. I'm I'm tracking with you, Jesus. I understand where we're going. I understand what it is we're trying to create. But Jesus' answer is equally as calculated as Peter's. Because he responds... Not seven times, but 77 times. So Cain goes off to build this new world. He starts creating these new cities. And what happens is it seems the idea of revenge seems to escalate. Cain has a great, great, great grandson named Lamech. And evidently someone has done something to hurt or offend Lamech. And Lamech speaks these words. Lamech said to his wife, Adah and Zilhah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Jesus' words are so precise and so calculated that it's not this new world where we just forgive seven times. It's this new world where Lamech's idea of how things are supposed to work is completely turned on its head. Where we continue to forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. Not just three times, not just seven times, but 77. And what he's getting at is not this idea of just, well, 77 times. Make sure you keep charts. Make sure you keep tracks. Keep notes section in your iPhone. Dot them off every time someone does something against you. And when you get to 77, 78, you're good. But it's this idea that is forming this new world that Jesus came to create. That forgiveness goes on and on and on. And forgiveness has no bounds. And for me, I'm, I'm sure for you too, at times that seems almost impossible. You hear some of the things that Jesus says, like in the Sermon on the Mount, where he goes to these disciples and he says, you've heard that it was said to love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies. 
and pray for those who persecute you, that you would be sons of your Father in heaven. Or as Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, Father, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Or even Jesus' maybe most powerful words that he utters from the cross, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they are doing. And at times, this idea of forgiveness, this concept of forgiveness, is something so difficult for us to imagine and picture. Because every single one of us have been hurt. I understand in this room, there are some people who have suffered some really difficult things. There's been abuse, there's been neglect, there is divorce, there is hurt, there is pain, there is death. And at times, we are forced into this place where we have to forgive. Sometimes forgiving other people who have wronged us. Sometimes forgiving ourselves for what we have done or have not done. And maybe for some of us, even trying to forgive God. Because we feel like we got the short end of the stick. And so the... Through this series, we want to wrestle with these questions of what is the scope of forgiveness and how do we forgive and how do we move on when we experience hurt, when we experience pain, and so many times when it is the furthest thing from our mind is being able to forgive, being able to let go, being able to move on. But I want to begin this series with a story. And it is a story that poses a powerful question. The story is from a book called The Sunflower, and it's about a man named Simon Winsenthal. Simon was a Holocaust survivor. And the story begins with he and his platoon of prisoners being marched back into the German, or a German concentration camp. And he says... Our column suddenly came to a halt at a crossroads. I could see nothing that might be holding us up, but I noticed on the left side of the street there was a military cemetery. It was enclosed by a low barbed wire fence. The wires were threaded through sparse bushes and low shrubs, but between them you could see the graves aligned in stiff rows. And on each side of the grave there was planted a sunflower, as straight as the soldiers on parade. I stared spellbound. The flower heads seemed to absorb the sun's rays like mirrors and draw them down into the darkness of the ground as my gaze wandered from sunflower to grave. It seemed to penetrate the earth and suddenly I saw before me a periscope. It was gaily colored and butterflies fluttered from flower to flower. Were they carried messages from grave or were they carrying messages from grave to grave? Were they whispering something to each flower to pass on to the soldiers below? Yes. This is exactly what they were doing. The dead were receiving light and messages. And suddenly, I envied the dead soldiers. Each had a sunflower to connect him with the living world and butterflies to visit his grave. And for me, there would be no sunflower. I would be buried in a mass grave where corpses would be piled on top of me. No sunflower would ever bring light into my darkness. And no butterflies would dance above my dreadful tomb. One day, Simon's platoon of prisoners was assigned to work 
in a hospital. The hospital was a converted high school. Ironically enough, it was the high school that Simon Winsenthal attended in his youth. One day, his platoon was marched into the courtyard. And there, as they began to work, Simon was approached by a nurse. And the nurse turned to Simon and said, excuse me, are you a Jew? Simon looked at her and replied, yes, unsure of what his answer would mean. She said, very well, follow me. She led Simon through the courtyard, outside the school, through the doors, into a dimly lit hallway, up several flights of stairs into an office, where she said, Simon, come and sit. The nurse straightened up and said quietly, stay here. Then she went out of the room, and from the bed I heard a weak, broken voice exclaim, please come nearer. I can't speak loudly. Now I could see the figure in the bed far more clearly, white, bloodless hands on the counterpane, head completely bandaged with openings only for mouth, nose, and ears. The feeling of unreality persisted. It was an uncanny situation. Those corpse-like hands, the bandages, the place in the strange encounter was taking place. I did not know who this woman was or who this man was, but obviously he was German. Simon sits down beside the bed and the man begins to reach and feel around until he grasps Simon's hand and he holds it tightly and he begins to confess the atrocities that he has committed against so many Jewish men and women and children just like Simon. His story begins in his confession as him and his battalion of soldiers headed towards a mass of huddled Jews. The dying Nazi went on. Then another truck came up full of more Jews. And they too were crammed into the house with others. And the door was locked and a machine gun was posted opposite. I knew how this story would end. My own country had been occupied for German, Germans for over a year. And I had heard of similar happenings throughout the cities. The method was always the same. He could spare me the rest of his gruesome account. So I stood up ready to leave, but he pleaded with me. Please stay. I must tell you the rest. I really don't know what kept me there. But there was something in his voice that prevented me from obeying my instinct to end the interview. Perhaps I wanted to hear from his own mouth, his own words, the full horror of the Nazis' inhumanity. When we were told that everything was ready, we went back a few yards and then I received the command to remove safety pins from the hand grenades and throw them through the windows of the house. Detonations followed one after another. My God. Now he was silent. He raised himself slightly from his bed. His whole body was shivering, but he continued. We heard screams and we saw flames eat away from floor to floor. We had our rifles ready to shoot down anyone who tried to escape this blazing inferno. The screams from the house were horrible. Dense smoke poured out and choked us. His hand felt damp 
He also shattered, but was sh- he was so shattered by his recollection that he broke into a sweat, and I loosened my hand from his grip, but once again he groped for it and held it tight. Please, please, he stammered. Don't go away. I have more to say. I no longer had any doubts how this story would end. Behind the windows of the second floor, I saw a man with his small child in his arms. His clothes were alight, and by his side stood a woman, doubtless the mother of the child. With his free hand, the man covered the the child's eyes, and then he jumped into the street. Seconds later, the mother followed, and then from the windows, others fell. And we shot. Oh, God, we shot. With this confession, the man, deeply troubled, began to try to look for words. To simply ask for pity, but how could he ask for pity and forgiveness in this situation? He sat up, he put his hands together as if to pray. I want to die in peace, and so I need. I saw that he could not get the words past his lips, but I was in no mood to help him. I kept silent. I know that what I have told you is terrible. In the long nights while I've been waiting for death, time and time again, I have longed to talk to a Jew about it and beg forgiveness from him. Only I did not know whether there were any Jews left. I know that what I am asking you is almost too much. But without your answer, I cannot die in peace. With that, Simon Winsenthal stood up, left the room, never uttering a word. Simon Winsenthal survived the Holocaust. And he went on to write this book. But before he wrote this book, he visited the dead soldier's mother in Stuttgart, Germany. Because his consciousness would not let go of the fact that he walked out that day without saying a word. And he had to get a better grasp of who this man really was. As he sat across from the mother, she told stories of how she remembered her child. Stories of his faith in God. And the mother and father's disappointment when he decided to join the Nazi army. All she could cling to was the goodness that she remembered in her son. And Simon sat and listened, never once uttering an unkind word about the woman's son, refusing in some way to submit her to the torture inflicted on him and his fellow Jews by her son and so many other soldiers just like him. Simon writes, I took my leave without diminishing in any way the poor woman's last surviving consolation. Faith in the goodness of her son. Simon concludes his powerful and captivating book with this. The crux of the matter is, of course, the question of forgiveness. Forgetting is something that time alone takes care of. But forgiveness is an act of volition. And only the sufferer is qualified to make the decision. 
you who have just read this sad and tragic episode in my life can mentally change places with me and ask yourself a crucial question. What would you have done? The story brings to my mind powerful reminders of Jesus' words. That you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And it brings up this question. Is forgiveness always a possibility? Can forgiveness always happen? Or are there things that happen to us that are beyond the scope of forgiveness? Where forgiveness is not a possibility. And it brings to question, the: can we imagine a world? A world that Jesus dreamed of. Where forgiveness is something that can happen in the height of the most terrible circumstances. When sin does its worst to humanity. Can humanity look back and say, yes, I will forgive like Jesus. What I can tell you is this is a practice of spiritual formation. You do not wake up tomorrow and decide today I will love my enemies. It's not that easy. You do not wake up tomorrow and say today I forgive. It's not that simple. It is a practice of discipline that comes through prayer and meditation over time. That we learn to be people of forgiveness. In a world that Jesus is forming through forgiveness. We begin to embody who Jesus was. And the very words that he spoke from the cross. Father forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. But there are still people around us. Who have the ability. Who have the capacity to dream of a different world. A world where revenge and anger are not the only answer. People like Martin Luther King, who said to our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we will continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as cooperation with good. Throw us in jail and we will still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead and we shall still love you. But be assured of this, that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And one day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you over in the process. And our victory 
will be a double victory. Plain and simple, Christian forgiveness is the renunciation of the cycle of revenge. It is saying that no longer is the way of Cain the way of the world. No longer is Lamech's idea of a perfect revenge the way the world has to work. But now through Jesus' death and resurrection, through his words of forgiveness, come this new world that has been created where not 77 times over revenge is the way that it works, but 77 times over forgiveness is the way the world works. But everything within us says it cannot work that way. That cannot be the way the world works. And what we see all around us in this world is not 77 times revenge, but I think it's escalated more and more to 777 times revenge. That's what we have to do. That's what we have to do to get even. Anger and revenge is the only answer. And Jesus says, no, forgiveness is. Forgiveness is only the only way that the cycle, that the relationship is renewed. It is the only way the relationship is restored. Through forgiving. We wonder at times what it takes to convince a world who does not believe that there is a better way. I, may, I think maybe no better way in the last several years has illustrated that there is a better way than the Amish community's response to the family of Charles Carl Roberts IV who entered an Amish schoolhouse near near Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania. He shot ten girls. Five died. Five were seriously wounded. And then he took his own life. The rest of the country was overcome with anger at what had happened. But the rest of the country was blown away by the response of the Amish. Because as reporters showed up at the home of Roberts to ask questions of his grieving widow, it wasn't just simply the reporters that showed up, it was also families, grieving families from the Amish community that showed up to comfort Roberts' widow, to surround her during this difficult time because she too had lost a loved one. And the country was even more blown away when 70 people showed up for Robert's funeral. And of the 70 that showed up, 30 of them were from the Amish community, several of which had just days earlier buried their daughters. The country was so compelled because in this tragic moment, this group of people somehow had the capacity to reach out and love someone who meant the worst thing in the world to them. Her husband had done the most incredibly violent, ruthless, atrocious act 
And there they were. And our country stood captivated as this unfolded. A reporter named Joan Chisler wrote this. It was the Christianity that we all profess, but what the Amish practiced that left us stunned. She concluded that the Amish surprised our world the same way the earliest Christians astounded the Roman world, simply by being Christian. I believe they realized that a new day could not be a possibility if they were not able to let go of today. And the things that you hold on to, that you carry with you into tomorrow, prevent you from living life as Jesus intended you to live life. Free from the burden of your past. See, the good news, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus on the cross forgave you of your sins. And as you enter into life with him, you become part of this forgiven community of forgiving sinners. That we understand that Jesus has changed and transformed us by letting us free from our past. But because of that, you have now been called to be co-creators of this new world, a world that is formed by forgiveness. A world that looks at people who hurt us and we say, we are not going to hold this against you. And simply invites them to be a part of this new world. I think that's why Jesus' words are so difficult for us as he teaches his disciples to pray. Father, teach us to forgive as you have forgiven. Father, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. I don't want to imagine a world where God forgives as I do. I do, however, want to imagine a world that forgives as God does. But for that to happen, that means you and I must be people who are formed in the way of forgiveness. The Jesus way. That forgiveness shapes and transforms who we are. About 19 years ago, 19 men armed with box cutters and hate radically changed this world. Could you imagine what 500 people filled with the Spirit of God, empowered by His Spirit, armed with faith, hope, and love, could do? Could you imagine a new world, a world formed by forgiveness? Understand this. Death always precedes resurrection. But forgiveness is the only way to move from death to resurrection. And so now we come to the table of the Lord. It is a table prepared for you. For those who have been here often and those who have not been here long. It is a table formed by forgiveness. A table that invites you to come to the feast. 
a table that forms us in the image of Jesus, our Savior.